We're doing this uh, podcast via Zoom and looking behind you, uh, a lot of souvenirs, an impressive uh, collection. That's something of a tradition for you, isn't it? To keep the press pass and also by the, the official mug at the International Athletics Meeting. Yeah, I've got lots of athletics mugs. As a journalist, if you cover a major athletics championship, you will always get a branded bag. So the current one I'm using is actually from the World Athletics Championships in London in 2017. I've got another bag, a big one, which is from, I think it's from the most recent World Paris in Dubai, because it's a huge bag. Sometimes the bags you get at Olympic Games are brilliant. Uh, the bag I got in Beijing was one of the best I've ever had. I still see people with that bag at events 12 years on, because it's got so many different pouches and it was made of really thick fabric, because a lot of these things don't last. The, the bag we got in London, I think, broke on day five. Um, but the London 2017 bag, you still go to lots of events and you still see people with that bag because it's a really good bag. So I don't need to go out and buy bags. But yeah, I, I mean, I will generally get a mug and I will generally, if I tint, tilt my camera, I will generally get a mascot as well. And it goes into this. We started putting them into this glass cabinet a few years ago. So like I've got Berlino from the two Berlins. I've got... Uh, Cooley, who for me is one of the best mascots they've ever been, which was Zurich 2014. Um, I've got the mole from Prague. I've got about 30 or 40 mascots here. Some of the mascots are actually very bad. There's Appy, who you might remember from Helsinki in 2012, and Benabad, the steeplechaser, when he won his European title, ran through the line, was given his, you know, victory flowers by the mascot who was a girl in a costume a 14 year old girl in a costume and he shoved her over not knowing it was a 14 year old girl in a costume because you just see a mascot and nothing else and then i've got my accreditations from various championships behind me in my little mini office in this little alcove of the living room as well from olympic games world championships european championships the para events i've done as well uh cork city sports like they all tend to go here and there must be maybe 100 or 120 of them because i used to keep them in an envelope which was fine and then when we moved house about seven years ago and I got a brilliant great big office I decided yeah you know, I'd put them up there so that I'd be doing something with them um and that office is now you know a boy's bedroom so everything got shifted here and I've got one bookcase with basically uh, reference books and statistics and then there's another room that most of my books are in but I've got a lot of my old news the world football annuals um and nationwide football annuals and the earliest one that i've got here is from 87 88 but the first one i got was 85 86 1985 was a very seminal year in terms of you know what i ended up doing uh as a career definitely had a had a lot of influence in me and like i've got loads of books here about eight of them and the reason they're here is that i haven't read them yet and i and you know, my mother gave them to me for christmas I've, i was given this by the way a couple of days ago um a french language football colleague of mine called charles tiellier has just released an autobiography of conor mcgregor and then he goes and retires and i did an interview with him on saturday which i'm hoping to put out in a couple of days and suddenly now it's dated thanks conor well, speaking of which, have you been have you been reading much? Have you been watching much series during the lockdown? Um, well, it's funny. People were raving about Stranger Things to me for years, and I'm I'm the sort of cantankerous person that if a lot of people are telling me to watch something, I'm not going to watch it. Um, but I watched Stranger Things for the first time before Christmas. Plowed through it in about two or three days. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I've got this weird fixation with Scandinavian dramas at the moment. Um, 
There's a couple of really good ones. But the thing is, it's a country with a population like us, so it's the same actors who tend to appear in everything. But there was a fantastic one that appeared on Channel 4 a couple of years ago called Acquitted. And the, the thing that Channel 4 were doing at the time is they'd show the first episode and then the rest you had to watch online. And I wish they'd showed it all on TV because it is one of the best things I've ever seen. What's been on the TV most over the past three months is um, Minions and the Despicable Me movies. Every single day i now know every line from all four of the films and it's just lucky that the films are so good and are actually funny you know as comedies like if you think about you know the great animated series of all time the likes of toy story and so on which is a masterpiece and the other pixar greats like we'll say coco and inside out and so on and the disney classics like snow white and cinderella and so on that they're great they're marvellous, Dumbo, Jungle Book, etc. They're brilliant, but if you think about it, they're actually not funny. Whereas I think the reason why Despicable Me is now the highest grossing animated series of all time, having watched every film endlessly over the past three months and waking up in the middle of the night thinking about plot points, that is not a joke. That has actually happened. Um, something suddenly jumps into the head. They're actually really good comedies. I'm not surprised they've done well. And they sort of, they passed me by until the kids were, you know, a particular age and they started watching them a couple of years ago. I, like the first two films passed me by completely. I knew about the Minions, obviously, because everyone does. But actually watching the films, I can see why they do well because they are very, very funny. So yeah, that's been my life for the last three months. Podcasts and Minions and nothing else. Uh, I was telling Stephen Fraser, you all man, good buddy of mine, that you were, you were coming on the podcast today. Uh, you would have co-commentated with his dad at CRY for many years during a golden era for for you all soccer. Well, you must have many great memories of those FAI Cup clashes. Well, I do actually, and the thing is, is like I'd been working in Dublin for a couple of years by that stage, um, working for INN, and like I also worked as well for the likes of FM One Hundred Four and Q One Hundred Two, um, and so on for a good few years as part of the INN work. But then you all started having their great run, and I was asked by you know the sports editor Gene Crotty, who was there for a long time, uh, alongside yourself. Uh, would I like to come down and do a few games? So, I mean, sometimes I might have done two or three commentaries a year. I was asked if I, I couldn't do the very first round, the preliminary round game of, I think it was the the Intermediate Cup or the FEI Cup, couldn't do it. So was asked then to do the next game. So like they went through a few rounds uh, and it starts off local and then it goes national. And then round by round, the games are getting bigger and the crowds are getting bigger. And obviously it's a big local thing. Like I'm starting 2001 here. They had another really good run in 2011 where they Bray Wanderers at home. And that's the perfect draw you want. A a league side, Premier Division side, a notable name, and you're playing them at home. Because what ended up happening was, uh, you know, they played the likes of Black Diamonds at home. They had a very good home run in that time in the Intermediate Cup and in the FAI Cup. Then they end up in the third round of the FAI Cup, which is like the FA Cup. All the big teams come in and they get drawn away to UCD. So again, it's a Premier Division side. They get to play in a Premier Division stadium, the old Belfield Stadium as it was. Massive crowd of around 1,500. Practically everybody, because I've covered UCD for years, they don't, unfortunately. They've got a lovely stadium, new stadium now, the Belfield Bowl, which held a lot of games in the European Under-17 Championships last year, but they don't get very big home crowds. And like, I worked on the League of Ireland, by the way, for TV for 12 years, which was an absolute joy. Um, But 
you know, probably of the crowd of 1,500 for that, maybe 1,450 were from Yule, pretty much the town going up north en masse. And, you know, and obviously, Yol scored as well through Derek Murphy, an absolute blaster from 30 yards, a thunderbolt. And this was back in the day when, you know, multi-channel had a sports channel. So they had that game on as well uh, with, you know, another old colleague of ours, Derek Kiley, commentating on that. So that was fantastic. I, I loved working with Ray for years. Like, I, th- there are so many great commentary colleagues I've had down through the years. Tolson, I've mentioned, I love working on him with athletics and the para-athletics and other s- stuff that I work on, different TV productions that we do. Dick Cooper and Jesse Barr and the Athletics is just an absolute delight. And Tolson as well, working on that. In football, like the best prepared I've ever worked with, definitely Brian Kerr, Brian Little, and more recently, Lee Hendry of the more recent generation. The preparation he does is magnificent. It's tremendous. But working with Ray was fantastic. Absolute pleasure. Like we ended up all over the country. We did uh, those games against Fanet as well. The Intermediate Cup quarterfinal, which again, you all could have won. And you remember, Fanet are pretty much the most northerly club in the country. It's next stop, Reykjavik. And I mean, that was something like a six or a seven hour bus journey. I'd, I'd gone to you all on the Saturday morning and... I'd actually thought the bus had left, but thankfully hadn't. <laughs> so um, so there was going to be a commentary in the end because, like, there was no way. I don't drive. There was no way I was going to get up. And this is nearly 20 years ago. There was no way I was going to get up to um, northern Donegal on my own. Thank you very much. And the fan of Peninsula. Um, but it was a great team. The the pity was, like, they had a brilliant manager as well in, in Davy, And sort of the, the team sort of broke apart sort of very quickly after that. Because if you look at the likes of, you know, the great Cork sides, you know, you can look at College Corinthians, you can look at Cove Wanderers, you can look at the likes of, let's say, Sheriff and Carew Park, St. Michael's and Tipperary, North End to a certain degree as well, Evergreen just down the road from me here in Kilkenny, that go far in you know the FEI Intermediate and Junior Cups quite regularly and who end up in the FEI Cup proper quite regularly. And they had a brilliant foundation there. They had the team. They had the experience. They had some good young players in that as well. Obviously, Ken Hennessy as well, a fullback, ended up becoming an international referee, which was magnificent. But they were a really good team. But, I mean, within a year, they'd gone out, I think, of the Munster Senior League. They'd gone back to the, to the Red House League again. And, you know... Uh, the manager changed and a new manager from outside was brought in and it sort of fell apart very quickly. But for them to get back to that platform again in 2011 and to end up playing Bray at home. And I mean, they were outclassed. Gary Dempsey, you know, who played in the European underage winning sides under Brian Kerr, that brilliant team that, you know, Jim Goodwin and John O'Shea was in. Uh, around the same era that Damien Duff and Robbie Keane were in that under-20 World Cup side that did so well in Malaysia, reaching the semi-finals. Um, I mean, Gary Dempsey's played years in the Scottish Premiership and he was class on that day and a 3-1 win for Bray. You couldn't argue with it. But, I mean, for those games to be on, for you all to still have a bit of success there was fantastic. And I was delighted then when I ended up working for five seasons on the FEI Junior Cup in TV. And for the final season, we did it. Although we didn't know at the time it was going to be the final season because the sponsors, Aviva, then withdrew from football. But I'll tell you, as sponsors, they were absolutely incredible. Um, We covered on TV highlights the opening rounds then of the FEI Junior Cup. And you all thankfully went far enough for us to say, right, we're going to send a camera down to y'all. So I can't remember, was it Cherry Orchard or someone like that, that they played? It was a really wet night and a Friday night. And I was actually away at the time. 
I was listening to you commentating on radio. I was in Riga Airport, and um, it was a miserable night. But like you, you, you managed to keep the broadcast on air, and thankfully the TV gantry managed to stay up in the wind and the rain and the storms. Um, and you know, like they got through, which was brilliant. So we managed to get your United on TV for one round. Sadly, they went out away from the cameras the following rounds, but um, it was sort of a little thank you, if you like, for uh, giving me such very good footballing memories and, if you like, giving me a bit of a leg up as well in football commentary, which I would have done in the very early days. Yeah, so many great memories of uh, covering y'all United with uh, Ray Fraser and uh, other, other, I suppose, local events that spring to mind, Will, that, um, I mean, one is no longer with us now, sadly, the Valley Cotton 10. That was an iconic uh, race, to say the least. And, of course, we had the Tour de France pass through y'all 22 years ago next month. That was a bit disappointing, actually. I mean, it was iconic that it came through y'all, but... It was somewhat um, underwhelming, wasn't it? Well, there were a couple of things about that. So first of all, the Tour de France, I was working on that for WLR, Waterford Local Radio. I was working for them for that 18 months. Uh, Waterford was going to be a preem. Uh, the stage started, I think it was in Enniscorthy, and then obviously finished in Cork. So I'd, I'd had a few periods working for Southeast Radio either side of that. The WLR coverage on the time was, was fine. I, I mean, one of the main... Uh, news and sports correspondents Pat Murphy was a big cycling fan so he put a lot of work into their cycling coverage so I ended up I think I, I was doing a few interviews and stuff like that on the day I don't think I was involved in the live coverage itself um, they covered the cyclists going through Waterford live then through Carrick and Shore live because obviously if you're bringing the Tour de France to Ireland it has to go through Sean Kelly's hometown went through Dungarvan so the so the so they covered those sections live, and that was pretty much it. Southeast Radio had a long live program that day, which really impressed me. But obviously, CRY, there was live commentary all day from uh, quite a few different commentators at different vantage points. And I think your nerve centre was in the clock gate, which was very, very impressive. And if I remember, French TV put a camera there as well. So your commentary team there in 98, probably it is before your time in terms of radio, Jordan. But, you know, uh, I know Gene Crotty was commentating. I think McSheehan, I think Ken Bullman were among the commentators. So then you had the massive crash around Grange heading into Yall, where Chris Boardman, who's one of the favourites for the Tour de France, crashes off. He hits a spectator. Um, and that's the end of his Tour de France. And obviously, it was a young spectator as well, I think, a young child who ended up, um, I think, in hospital for a couple of days. I remember speaking to a local correspondent around there who sadly passed away subsequently, Kevin Gallagher, um, who was sort of filling us in with news about that. So suddenly, Boardman comes down. Now, I, I so I, I was in WLR and had passed through... Waterford, and then that was it. The, the story's over. Go home, everyone. Um, so, like, I was in studio doing a little bit of extra sort of Tour de France work for different bulletins and so on. And then Boardman goes down. So, just outside you also think, okay, that's a big shock. Okay, we're... I, there's something in my head that tells me it was a bank holiday. Maybe it had been designated a bank holiday or something like that. It was on the Monday, wasn't it? Or maybe it just felt like a bank holiday. So I said, okay, well, I'll ring CRY. I'll see if they know anything about it because they're probably doing a bit of coverage. I didn't actually realise there was full live commentary going on for hours and hours off TV. Then, you know, switch to, you know, the commentator's own vision uh, for when, you know, the race is coming through y'all and so on. So I ring up. And then suddenly I'm put live on air. And so I'm ringing CRY to find out what's happened with Chris Boardman. And then I hear Gene saying, and now let's try and find out what's happened with Chris Boardman. Here's Will Downing. Well, 
what I've seen from the TV pictures, Gene, is, you know, there's obviously been a big crash. Look to him passing just outside Grange. We don't really know what's happened. It's literally on-the-spot reporting. And if there's been any time in my career, I've been on the spot. That was it. Um, and I think it was on air with yourselves for about five or six minutes. And, you know, the piece I was looking to get for WR, I never got. But I, I ended up being involved in your station's coverage of the Tour de France for about five minutes, which I'm actually quite proud of, to be honest with you. Um, I've, I've only heard the coverage back maybe once, subsequently, a couple of months afterwards. I've got a tape of it that's somewhere in my mother's. All those old Yule United games, all the early stuff I did for years for Southeast Radio, for WLR, they're all in cassette tapes in a bunker somewhere, probably in my in my bedroom in my mother's house, which basically is like the Marie Celeste. It hasn't been touched since 1996, so there's still... So there's still a there's still a Wexford GAA in 1996 calendar on on the wall of my bedroom in my mother's house because I basically have only slept there about ten nights in the last twenty years. I was wondering about that all your classic interviews and commentary. So you, you do archive them, you do have physical copies because that's something we probably miss nowadays. Like you're putting something on the cloud, or you're putting something on a memory stick. Will it be there in twenty, fifty years time? You wonder. Well, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, it's amazing the sort of stuff that's lost. Um, there was a great story, actually mentioning Danny Baker, um, as it was a few minutes ago. There was a story that he did on his show uh, a few weeks ago where somebody was going through their attic a couple of years back and found a late 60s interview with George Harrison. And on reel-to-reel tape, and there are very few reel-to-reel um, tapes around anymore, so I thought, wow, this is fantastic. This could be really valuable. Um, this could be worth something. And, the, you know, even not even the monetary value, but there might be some gems on this tape. So they found a reel-to-reel machine after a few weeks. Like, uh, I'm so old that when I started off in Southeast Radio, there was a reel-to-reel machine still there, but it was being phased out and replaced by Minidisc. Um, so they found the reel-to-reel machine, played the interview with George Harrison, and it turned out to be a local agriculture official called George Harrison, and not the Beatle. But I mean, loads of my stuff um, from the early days is on cassette tape, and it's on Minidisc, and I don't think I've had a Minidisc... Uh, there's probably still a couple of Minidisc players that still work, but the last one I bought was in 2006, because when I was in Germany working in the World Cup, the Minidisc machine I had was actually stolen when I was working in Frankfurt. Um, we were working largely from the fan fests, the fan zones that were set up in the different cities. I made so many friends in Germany during that month. It was absolutely astonishing. So lifelong friends. Um, I absolutely fell in love with the country. Um, I was in all 12 cities and a few others as well that the World Cup was in. So a lot of our broadcasting, because I mean, INN, we weren't rights holders. Um, RTE only send radio people there if Ireland are playing and they don't do commentaries on any other matches, whereas obviously BBC have, and now TalkSport obviously do commentaries on every single game going and, and it's very heavily staffed. Um, so with INN, it was a staff of one, which, which was me. And I was in the fan zone in Frankfurt, which I didn't know at the time. Like the crime rate in Germany is very low. And as all my German, tells, German friends tell me, the reason for that is, is because crime is against the law. That's why there's a low crime rate. Um, but Frankfurt has the highest crime rate in Germany. Um, I don't know how it compares to cities in Ireland and Britain or whatever, but um, the media area, there was a whole lot of TV work being done there uh, for the first two games in the day. And what they did in Frankfurt was they built this big stadium, pretty much, a whole load of stands on both sides of the Main River. 
and they had a whole series of massive big screens right in the middle of the river. So we were doing a lot of our broadcasting there. That's how we were working from city to city, and every city did it differently. Um, So for the last game, the other TV companies weren't very interested. It was you know, a small game in comparison. So then suddenly a whole load of fans came into the media zone and there's only a couple of us journalists left. So I had my laptop. I mean, I had all the equipment. I had tons of stuff out. So I packed a lot away, you know, put my camera, my phone into my pockets and so on. The only thing that I didn't put away, I had my foot on my laptop so no one could nick it. And then a couple of kids came, talk to me and so on. And You know, they were really chatty. They were really friendly. They were really interested in what I did, genuinely. And then I discovered when everyone went away, they'd nicked my mini disc machine. And I thought that's the one thing they will not steal because they won't know what it is. Um, but, but you know, it was, you know, MP3s were starting off and people were beginning to buy mini disc players. So, it you know, they didn't care about my laptop or my phone because that was garbage. Mini disc player, yes, thank you very much. But um, a lot of my interviews um, from the dawn of time were on mini disc and that replacement player that I bought during the 2006 World Cup, I think it's still in my mother's house. So a lot of the stuff like... It would have been digitized at the time, but to get very technical for 10 seconds, it was all being done as WAVs, which are really huge files. And it was only in subsequent years that people started dealing in MP3s, which you can actually store thousands of on a laptop and so on. So what actually happened in INN was, I would say pretty much, apart from the stuff that we managed to archive and put on CDs and stuff, I would say 99% of the INN archive was wiped. And unfortunately, that I would say happens in lots of radio stations. There was one radio station in particular, we used to do a massive review of the year in INN. I did it for about six or seven years. And every Christmas, I kept getting longer and longer and longer and I I, I, f- I felt if I wasn't going to quit radio one year it would definitely kill me um, and what was happening the last few years as well in INN was uh, you know I used to cover all of the GAA championships every single week but what started happening the last couple of years uh, being sports editor was they had to justify a full-time salary for me so then they started sending me to lots of events overseas like European athletics world athletics Olympics Ryder Cups etc so I was missing a lot of the GAA year so if I was at a game, I'd be doing commentary for a radio station as well as reporting for INN. So I'd loads of the commentary archive anyway at the end of the year. So, you know, here's the highlights from the Munster final, the Connacht final, the All-Ireland semi-final and so on. Um, but if I was away, then I didn't have those. So you'd be ringing various radio stations to say, look, um, we're putting our review of the year together. Do you have commentary from this game? Blah, 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 blah. So there was a particular radio station where a really good friend of mine had been working for about five or six years and he had left. And it was a radio station in an area with a very, very successful team. So great. They'll have all the commentaries. That'll be brilliant. And it was a station where I had loads of friends working as well. So people who I've worked with down through the years. So no problem there. Gave a ring at Christmas. Um, my mate had just left, but no problem there. You know, all the stuff will be there. Um one of my old, co- you know, a few of my old colleagues were still there and they said, yeah, yeah, I'll get you that stuff now. And the new sports editor had come in and had wiped everything, literally everything. Probably not just that year's archive. Uh, and it was in an area that had won the All-Ireland that year. All the commentaries, gone. The work, probably that year, the year before, the year after. Day zero had happened. Absolutely incredible. Uh, and that was towards the time, of, uh, that was towards the end of my time in INN when I thought, well, you know what, <laughs> if this is being done, what's the point? What, why, why are we doing this? Um, so I went freelance a couple of months later, not, 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 not just because of that. So, I mean, I always made sure that I kept an archive and I still have an archive, even if I don't necessarily have stuff to play it on. 
Well, if you look at YouTube nowadays, I mean, a lot of classic interviews seem to be trending. They, they seem to be uh, what people are, are, you know, watching on YouTube. Um, you've got a lot of uh, 90s football uh, has a big uh, cult following as well, seemingly like. So maybe that's something you could look at, Will, you know, releasing um, some classic interviews. Maybe that's your Fraser one. Well, yeah, actually, yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure I still have a copy of that on an old laptop. Um because I've interviewed actually a few different great boxers. I think Frank Bruno as well, I interviewed in my time as well. And obviously, you know, you'd the era, uh, Ricky Hatton, I remember interviewing at the World Darts Final. I covered darts for five years and loved it. I would cover the World Championship every year. That was an offshoot of me working in Wexford when the first World Grand Prix in Ireland was held in Ross Lair in 2000. Um, and that was it. I just got heavily into darts. There was a really brilliant press officer called Ollie Seaton and she said look hey you're welcome to come to any dart tournament you want and Gail Farmer was one of the main press officers as well who did all of the updates on the PDC website on Planet Darts and we're still friends on Facebook she's not involved in darts anymore but again I found with darts it was a bit like athletics um everybody's so friendly everybody wants to talk to you and they're delighted with the attention that was back in a day when there were three majors there was the grand prix the match play and the world championship now you've got about 25 there isn't a week of the year when there isn't darts on tv and i've always been a massive darts fan but now there's too much darts so a lot of it i i i I, i'm afraid i just don't watch i'll watch the world championship probably the match play and i mean if there are a couple of finals here and there i might watch them i might not it depends what other work i'm doing um Sorry, what was the question again? I was saying all all your classic interviews down through the years. Maybe you could look at like releasing them digitally, you know, such as the one with Joe Frazier. Absolutely. Um, And I still have that somewhere. And I've got loads of old interviews like Ricky Hatton I met at the darts because there was a period when Phil Taylor had a lot of celebrity fans and they would just show up like Robbie Williams and um, people uh, from, I don't know, S Club 7 and stuff like that. And you'd end up interviewing them. I remember interviewing Pierce Brosnan. While, while he was still Bond um, at the Special Olympics, uh, I remember interviewing Maria Shriver as well, um, married to Arnie when he was governor of California. And I, if I remember, obviously her, I think it was her mother or her grandmother had, was one of the founders of the, of the Special Olympics. So suddenly when the World Games were there in 2003 and we had a different kind of event that we had to try and approach differently because there is a major charity aspect to it. It's competitive sport, but not competitive sport, if you like. So you you would choose your phraseology in covering the Special Olympics very, very carefully. Um, God, there's tons of interviews out there. I'll tell you what, um, one of these great archivists actually put up a whole lot of boxing from... 2005, which I decided I would watch one night a couple of weeks ago, and it's it's actually me commentating. There's I, I'm on stuff on YouTube that I've forgotten about by now. Uh, the first year Satanta was on, the first couple of years Satanta was on, they they went to cover everything. They covered the National Box, Bo- Boxing Championships. They covered um, hockey for five or six years. They, when Orti had stepped away from covering the basketball in the early um Teens about 10 years ago, we had the cup final for three years on Satanta and we did lots of highlights. And like, I also worked on Hoop Zone, which went out on TG Car in 2001. So there's loads of stuff out there that I'm actually on. But yeah, I've got a massive archive at home and I'm always thinking one day, this is obviously now the perfect time to do it. Um, except for the fact that, you know, we can only go a certain amount 
of distance from our home and I live about 100 miles from, 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 from my mother's house. But yeah, there's a massive archive there that, you know, one day, one day I'd like to digitize it and, and put it up online. The Fraser interview um, was particularly memorable for me because, and same with George Foreman, uh, it's just that the way they they talked, there was just this, it's, it's what I love from an interview is that there's a wonderful fluidity of words and information but they're not repeating themselves. It's it's the thing I noticed from doing the podcast and so on, because I also have to edit it too, is how unnatural speech actually is. That there are, you know, if you're if you're reading something on a page, there is a flow to it. But even if you're listening to my answer now, there are a few pauses here, there's a few ums and ahs, there's a few you knows. And you know, if you're editing something, you know, you know, it's really irritating. I'd never even noticed it the first time we did it, but Stefan, who's French, who's obviously communicating through a different language, he'd heard the first one go out and he said, I sound terrible. And I said, do you? And then I listened to it back and I said, okay, yeah, there's a few things I can do with that. So like it tends, it, it spends hours to, of editing work to, to get everything sounding reasonably fine. But there are loads of interviews, certainly in the past, like Sonia O'Sullivan, we used to interview quite a bit because she was a major name still in the late 90s and early noughties and still winning major international titles and medals. The great thing about athletics, I think, from a local perspective as well, is that, you know, you would have covered races such as the Ballycotton 10, the Emer Casey road race. It's great to see international stars, particularly in the road racing scene, like Sonia O'Sullivan, uh, Sergio Chibanu, McClossey as well, strutting their stuff around Ballycotton or y'all, isn't it? Well, absolutely is. I mean, Sonia ran in Ballycotton one year. I think it was 2011. I think it was the year... No, 2001, should I say, sorry. It was the year of foot and mouth, so it couldn't take place in March. A bit like now, a lot of sport got bumped a few months. And, I mean, she was there, and she was perfectly you know, happy to do a live interview, which was great, which um, might not always have been the case during her career in, in retirement. Fantastic. You know, absolutely magnificent to deal with. Not, not that she wasn't as an athlete, but um, I think there were one or two times when she might have been a little bit spiky. But, I mean, there were great athletes who came over. Obviously, um, some all the great Irish athletes competed in it also. But I remember that a former World Cross Country champion competed in it. John Ngugi of Kenya. And it's the first World Cross Country Championship I ever remember watching. Easter night, Easter Sunday, 1986. And there was a big battle between him and a teammate of his and an athlete from Ethiopia who I think was called McConnon. And it was a brilliant... Like, the lead changed hands five times in the last 300 or 400 metres or something like that. It was an amazing sprint. He ended up running in Ballycotton. I think the first year we did it live around 96, 97. That was an experience in itself. I'd never seen anything like it. I don't think I'd ever been in Ballycotton before. And then you see this race in these narrow streets with, you know, up to three and a half thousand people. They obviously had to put a cap on it then through safety. And then sadly, the race in the last 12 months has hit the buffers due to increasing insurance, which has hit all sectors in Ireland, unfortunately, which is a sad thing to see. But the Cork City Sports, like... um, Yuri Sedek had the Hammer world record set in 1984, which was an event so significant, it ended up on World of Sport on ITV, their equivalent of Grandstand. You know, Sonia's daughter, is Sophie, is a very impressive athlete. She had a great win there last year. But Steve Ovette won there many times. Seb Coe raced there. It's something that, you know, the big Irish Grand Prix of, I think they've, they've lost a little bit because the big names obviously now concentrating the Golden League and the Diamond League, which wasn't around in the 70s and 80s. Um, 
I think the Golden League personally was much better than the Diamond League. I think there are too many meetings in the Diamond League and a lot of the cities they go to now, I don't think there's re- truly an athletics audience there, but that's that's a conversation for another time. I think the Golden League was absolutely fantastic. But the Cork City Sports, I'm delighted that it's still going. I mean, we've worked pretty much on all the major um, athletics events in the country and the atmosphere there. Like when the European Team Championships, the you know the second flight were held in, in Santry back in... Uh, I think it was 2013, like Satanta decided to cover it and gave it full belt, 15 cameras, the most that any athletics event in Ireland had ever received. And to work on something like that, the buzz around it reminded me a lot of the Paralympic Games the previous year. Um, we, we definitely are a sporting nation. And I do find that the knowledge, the general knowledge of sport across the board has kind of gone down a little bit since I was a kid. And I think the reason why is, I mean, you know, Sean Kelly, Stephen Roach, Martin Early were all household names in the 80s. Nicholas Roach and Sam Bennett, I feel, aren't quite in the same bracket now. And like they've been winning, you know, major road races and major stages as well in the Tour de France. And they'll get a lot of publicity for a day or two. And that's pretty much it. I think what's ended up happening is like in Ireland, the three major sports, if you like, are Gaelic games, soccer and rugby. And they are all completely different from how they were even in the early 90s. You have the Champions League, so you can watch pretty much every European game live now. You you know, the Premier League, there's about 150 live games a year when previously you had about 40. Uh, rugby, you've got, you know, the Rugby World Cup now. You've got the European Cup. You've got... Uh, the Pro 14, which weren't around. There were only domestic club games. You had maybe five or six live rugby matches a year back in the early 90s. And obviously Gaelic Games is live every single week now. And you have what for me is a very convoluted process. You've got a group stage in the Munster Championship. You have a group stage in the All-Ireland Football. You have the backdoor system. And you've got, an, um, you, you've got way, I think, way too many games being played now. And Obviously, there's loads of uh, GA matches. I remember being a guest on um, 96FM on, oh, Janie, it must have been Neil Prendival's show as it was on the time uh, during London 2012 when one of Rob Heffernan's races in London wasn't shown live because I think something like Meath against Kildare or Meath against Wicklow was being shown live instead, which was very important in those two particular counties, but obviously was not of national importance, whereas Rob's race obviously was. Um so, I mean, you've got, between all the channels, you might have 200 or 250 live GA matches a year now, when previously you'd have had both All-Ireland finals and hurling and football, the final, and that was it, and nothing else. Um, so, the three main sports have expanded massively, and it's eaten into the coverage that all the other sports are getting, like athletics and cycling and swimming, for example, where, you know, traditionally we've had some very, very strong competitors, and they're not really, I think, getting the airtime that they used to, and they're not getting the column inches that they used to either, and, I mean, you you, you try very hard, and all the various different organisations I've worked for, you've tried hard in order to boost their coverage and so on, and sometimes we'd be successful, other times we try and get various things to wear which aren't successful, but, you know, there's something about athletics, and I've, I've said this for many years, in athletics, if you happen to miss something, you will hear from everybody, we're sorry you're not here. And there's quite a bit of soccer I've worked on down through the years where people say, we're sorry you're here. That is interesting. Well, I suppose in a non-COVID world, um, you would be packing your bags now or getting your bags packed for, for Tokyo, would you? Uh, it's actually interesting. I, 
at the start of the year, I wasn't due to be working in either the Olympics or the Paralympics, um, but that could very easily have changed. There were a few big events that I was due to work for, which were wiped out by the current situation. I was due to be working on uh, Para Powerlifting World Cup, a big Paralympics build-up event, which was going to be in Dubai. That was in April. That got wiped out. I was due to work on the Invictus Games, which is sort of the Paralympics for injured soldiers. That was due to be in the Netherlands in May, which was actually the same week in May as the Eurovision Song Contest, which was going to be held down the road. So that would have been an interesting week. So that went to the wall. I was due to be working on the European Para-Athletics Championships, which are due to be in Poland this week. Um, I was due to be working on the International Champions Cup, more than likely, you know, the summer tournament that all the big clubs play in in the States and Australia and so on. And I was due to have a whole wave of summer friendlies as well that were going to lead into the autumn. And probably I'd have been working on the Paralympics, but maybe not the Olympics, because the Olympics I've covered for radio and it's been as a freelance. So essentially you more or less pay your way. And Japan's very expensive. So probably the Olympics I actually... If I was going to be working on them, it would have been from home. The Paralympics, more than likely, probably I would have been on site. Um, but they're on next year instead, along with everything else. So it's been a really weird summer where I've got, you know, two or three months of Polish football to look forward to. But bring it on. Happy days. Yeah, it's going to be strange having a Euro 2021 and an Olympics 2021. And an odd year, that's, that's certainly going to be unusual, isn't it? Well, it definitely is. But if you remember, the Ryder Cup used to be in odd number of years forever, basically. And then 9-11 happened just before the 2001 event. So then they went to even numbered years. But with the current situation, it looks likely they're going to go to odd numbered years again. So there, there would be two major catastrophes, if you like, that have knocked the Ryder Cup back into its natural long-term schedule again. It's going to be very unusual, very cluttered, not just 12 months, but, you know, there's a knock-on effect that some of the 2021 events, um, like the World Athletics Championship, have been pushed forward to 2022. So you've got something like a a five- or a six-week period in the summer of 2022 when you've got uh, the World Athletics Championships, the European Athletics Championships, and also for some nations the Commonwealth Games as well. And I think the women's European football as well, which was due to be 2021, is now going to be in 2022. So there is going to be a knock-on effect actually for a few years. The ripples will still be there going further into the decade that perhaps we don't quite fully realise yet. Talk to me a bit about your routine, Will. I know it's changed in recent months, but in terms of research preparation for a soccer game, shall we say, are your notes handwritten? Are you printing stuff out or what? Right, they used to be handwritten. They, they were handwritten for a long time. Like, I started doing TV football commentary, I would say, in 2005. And like some commentators do, I was writing my notes out in stickers. Um, there would be a full roll of them. And then when the team news would be announced, stickers come off, stick them on the page. I've got a, a spiral A4 book. I've got a whole load of them here, actually, which I will show you, which is great on a radio podcast. But anyway, I'm going to show you if no one else can see it. Um, so that's what I used to do for ages. And then I was doing, I started doing the Belgian football in 2010. So for pretty much the first time, I was then dealing with the same teams each and every week. So there was no point writing the same notes out about the same players every week. So what I did was I wrote out a master sheet and went to a, um, a printing store, uh, near Satanta Studios in Dublin, Snap Printing, and, you know, got them to do 20 color photocopies for me of the same pages. And then, you know, just mark out who was coming on, all well and good. But then what happened was I ended up working on a couple of things simultaneously. 
there used to be this soccer tournament in the south of Spain featuring Scandinavian teams and big teams from Eastern Europe. So you'd have two from Norway, two from Sweden, two from Denmark, and the likes of, let's say, Shakhtar and CSKA. It was called the Copa del Sol. And that would be two or three games a day, every day for about 10 days. That was a lot of writing. And what ended up happening was I ended up getting a massive welt on the finger that my pen was writing on. And there's still a remnant of it there 10 years on. So I wasn't able to physically write anymore. And I thought, okay, this this can't go on. If, if, if this is what my schedule is going to be like, then I need to do something else. And it turned out that I, I was working on Serie A at the time as well. I was doing the main Sunday night game on Satanta Ireland. And an old mate of mine, a Scottish commentator called Mark Donaldson, it turned out was doing exactly the same games for ESPN in the States and in the Americas. So like we were seeing from each other's Twitter feed, such as they were 10 years ago, that we were working on simultaneous games. So we hatched a plan. It was actually his idea that we'd swap notes. So I was scanning and emailing him my handwritten notes that I was I was taking literally great pains to scroll out. And he was sending me this wonderful... Um, document with all the information typed out in it a wonderful grid with all the information there and I thought this is fantastic and it turned out that he'd got it from a commentary colleague of his uh, who had done it up originally called Jim Proudfoot so Jim we don't know each other but thank you very much I think there's a few other commentators who've picked the grid up from me as well so that's what I've used for the last 10 years now I've modified it from how Mark had it so I've got a lot more information in I, I the thing which is very important for me particularly when I was working in something like South American football when I was working on Belgian football first and now I'm working on Polish football is to stick a photo of each squad member in that uh, grid because I couldn't tell you who the number 25 for Wisła Krakow is or, you know, the reserve goalkeeper for Pogon Stechin or, you know, Katowice's reserve left back. I'm, I'm sorry. Maybe you think I'm good, but I'm not that good. So like all that information uh, it goes on a document. And if I'm dealing with a team that I'm very familiar with, then it's pretty much, let's say, a copy and paste. I'm going to show you an example of what it is, right? And I do this for every game I do. Now, at my peak, I was doing maybe 200, 250 games a year. Right now, it's about 100. So what I'm showing you is one for Anderlecht against Standard Liège. Now, that's okay. I know those teams like the back of my hand. So that's, if I'm doing teams that I'm familiar with, then probably it's about maybe three hours preparation, even less if I've done their previous game. If I'm doing teams I'm not familiar with, like basically... It took a week to prepare the two first games I did, which was like Poznan against Legia Warsaw. And I've done them a bit for Satanta and Virgin in the Champions League previously, fair enough. But the second game was Krakowia against Jagiellonia Białystok. Good luck with that one. So, I mean, it took me a week to put together all the information I need. And the information I need going into a game is about every player, every club they've played for, what they've won, um, you know, games and goals, how old they are, stuff like that. I even put the birth date in because there might be a weekend I'm doing their game where it's their birthday. And okay, that's a line. That's fine. It's only once a year that you'd have that as a line, but it's a line. Then if there's anything quirky about them, um, like for example, okay, I'm sorry to say the first thing that comes to mind is about Jakub Wojciechowski. Um, He was raised by uh, his grandparents. He played yesterday, the former Borussia Dortmund legend. <coughs> Sorry about that. Um, there was a very unfortunate family incident. His mother died and his father ended up in prison uh, in the one incident. Um, 
Now, that's something that when he was very young and we didn't know him, I ran that stat maybe once or twice in the games we did. Now, I still uh, it's still in my head, but it's not something that I'd, I've used ever again. I, I find that if there's if you use a line about somebody... I'll give you another example. There's a player called Clinton Matter with Club Bruges, and he's really good. He'll end up playing, I think, in England very shortly, maybe next season. But he's been in Belgium for about six years. And when we started doing the Belgian football, the world feed, and it went out on Satanton, it went out on Premier Sports... Uh, he signed for Charleroi. He's from Africa. And the interesting thing about him, apart from who he's played for and what he's won, is he was born in November 1988. The end of November 1988. And his name is, sorry, 1992. The end of 92, November, uh, he was born. And his name is Clinton Matter. So you don't need to be Albert Einstein to work out that he was named after Bill Clinton. That is a brilliant line. So first shallower game we do, we mention it. Brilliant. Second shallower game we do, we mention it again because, you know, it's it's still a good line. Don't mention it again then for months and months, probably once more later on that season. Then a few years later, he joins Club Bruges, a much bigger club. We cover them a lot more. The first game he's playing in that, I'll mention the line again because, and don't, and don't forget, by the way, Clinton Matter was named after Bill Clinton because he was born the week of uh, Bill Clinton's victory. So it's just as well Bill didn't lose. Um, and then, But then obviously, if I'm covering Club Bruges and Virgin, that's for a different channel. It's for a whole different audience. So I can bring you know the fact out again, stuff that I'd used previously, let's say in the Belgian league, and I've worked in lots of other leagues, but it's the one I've worked on most over the last six years. Um, if you're dealing with a new audience, then you can use a lot of the old information again because for your new audience... It's new information. Um, and it's very much the case in the Polish league. Uh, there was a guy playing yesterday for... Who was I, who was I working on yesterday? It all becomes a blur. Pogon Stechen. And his first club is called... It's, it's called Chemic Police, but it's spelled Chemic Police. Now, that's a cop show I would like to watch. Well, those, the notes are really, uh, really impressive, really in-depth. And looking at your office there on, on Zoom, a lot of um, archive material, a lot of souvenirs. Do you think you'll open a, a museum in, in Monte Carlo down the line, as you call it? A few years ago, the woman of the house actually recommended that. Um, I, I think she was trying to get rid of clutter and suggested that, you know, I should really open a sports museum back down in Dungarvan or something like that and put all my stuff in it because people would probably appreciate it. And more importantly for her, it would no longer be in the house. The thing I'm terrible for is like, this is probably one bookshelf of about five I have that you can see, but I've got a whole lot of reference books. And if I go somewhere, like I, I usually spend some of my summer holidays in Estonia um, because obviously the boys are half Estonian etc etc so they do really good reference book after each Olympic Games Olympic and winter so I've picked up a lot of them and I happened to be in a second hand shop there last summer uh, I was on holidays in Estonia for about a week and a half I'd been in Minsk for the um, European Games there was a break of a 10 days before going to Kazakhstan for the para powerlifting world championships so that was my only window to have summer holidays last year and like Tallinn is only an hour's flight from Minsk, so we sort of planned in advance. Well, look, I mean, if the whole family is going to Estonia anyway, why don't we pick this week? I won't travel with you. I'll fly up from Minsk, join you for the summer holidays and so on. So I ended up in a charity shop there, and there were all old versions of these books from, you know, Lake Placid and, you know, the Munich Olympics and stuff like that. And like, I, I can't read Estonian. I barely know a word of Estonian, but I mean, I, I still 
bought them anyway. And they do a whole lot of brilliant reference books in Germany after each major championships, like World Cups, Olympics and stuff like that. And I always buy, buy them if I'm in Germany. So I've got a whole lot of reference books in, in different languages, which are, you know, just brilliant souvenirs. Um, like if I, I'm, I'm going to pick one out for you now. This is uh, 2012 European Championships. And it's like, it's got stats and brilliant colored pictures of basically everything. So I've got loads of these from tournaments going back to probably the 2006 World Cup. And I mean, I know we're in an internet age and all the information you need is online, but sometimes you will find something in an old reference book that's been forgotten. Like the reason why they went to every two years for the European Athletics Championships back in the late 60s and then reverted back. I mean, that's not something you can find online, but it's definitely, I found it in one of my old reference books that you pick up at the Athletics Championships. I found it there a couple of weeks ago. Um, and like, I've got loads of stuff here. I love the old nationwide football annuals because they're nice and small and all the information you need is in them as opposed to, you know, what was the Rothmans and which is now, I guess it's the... Who is it? Is it the Sun Football Yearbook? I mean, it still gets it, but I find the new, the the old news of the world, the nationwide one, is is quite handy. So I've got pretty much every single one of them from uh, 87, 88. Basically, every one bar one from 85, 86, which is the first one I got. Um, and the you know, there's still some gems that are in there um, even now, particularly in an era when in football, if you're trying to look up an English football stat online. It's just Premier League era only, which is really frustrating because football began a bit earlier than 1992. And those reference books are are fantastic. So, you know, if it turns out that, you know, if you want to reference Dixie Dean and his 60 goals from 1927 and a bit more information on that, it, it's all there. The forgotten man, if you like, I think, is a man called George Campbell because he had the record in 1926 when he scored 59 goals. And then Dixie Dean comes along the following year, scores 60 in a season, and he's the man who ends up being remembered. But that's life. You spend quite a lot of time in, in Tallinn uh, each year, so Will, is it a place you'd recommend to visit? Tallinn is one of my favourite places. Um, I mean, it's funny, when I, I went there first, uh, which was in 2009, a bit like Minsk, I was expecting somewhere quite Soviet and quite Eastern facing. And I, I think there was an athletics event there uh, that was on under 23s or under 20s or something like that in the late noughties. And, you know, then obviously I, I met the lady there who would become the mother of my children and so on. But I was shocked when I went into Tallinn because it was like being in Copenhagen or being in Stockholm or Gothenburg. Um, there is a very strong Scandinavian vibe there and it should actually be obvious. Now, I mean, prior to 1991, it was a different story there. Uh, because it was part of the Soviet Union and very little was getting through. Uh, they probably got live sports, the Eurovision Song Contest, and that was all of Western European culture they got there. But then the walls literally came down. Um, they have a massive singing festival they're very proud of, which they feel kick-started their route towards independence. Latvia and Lithuania believe the same. And, I mean, they are... There are three countries together, probably about the size of Ireland or a little more, population of around five million in total. So like geographically in size, there's a lot of similarities between them and us. But, you know, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania are three very distinct countries with a different feel in each one. But they do have a great working relationship between the three of them. But in Tallinn, there's a 90 minute ferry ride to Helsinki. 
there are about four or five ferries a day to Stockholm. I mean, you get Finnish TV in Estonia. Uh, you can probably get Swedish TV as well. So there's massive relationships between those two countries. So it's bright. It's breezy. It's a young country, again, in terms of they got their independence 30 years ago. But there's a very youthful population. It's sort of a very, it's sort of, it's very fashionable. Like, like people wear some really natty dressers there. Lots of it. Um, it's wonderful. Like, the weather is quite warm in the summer. You get a nice sea air, which is quite bracing. Um, it's a wonderful place. It's it's absolutely beautiful. They protected the old town quite well, but it's a really good modern city. They've got a great infrastructure. Uh, it is part of their law that free Wi-Fi is a human right. I thought that was a joke when I heard it first, but it's not. And the thing I find that when I'm there with the kids and so on is that pretty much every shopping center has to have a big play area. Restaurants and stuff have got play area as well. So you can bring the kids, put them in the play area, have your meal, have your drinks or whatever. Um, it's one of the most family-friendly places I've ever been. The atmosphere is terrific. And I guess one of the bonuses during the summer is that the sun barely sets. It's about 1am and you sort of think, hang on a sec, it's 1am, it's still perfectly bright. I should go to bed. Yeah, it's it, it, and they've got a couple of really nice beaches there, and I would massively recommend it. The prices are very cheap as well. Um, they have worked very hard in trying to dissuade the stag party and hen party market from visiting Tallinn, and I think they've actually done quite well in doing that. So, uh, I'm making it sound like a tourist paradise. I'll tell you one of the weird things was, um, I'd I'd completely uh forgotten about it, but. There is a big memorial there uh, to Joey Dunlop because he actually died in Tallinn. And I'd completely forgotten that it was there. I'd remembered him dying abroad somewhere in Eastern Europe, but I couldn't remember where it was. And then it was just said to me by a taxi driver in Dublin at the start of last summer, um, you know, you know, asking about the family and so on and so forth. And, oh, you have Estonian connections. I was in Tallinn last summer visiting Joey Dunlop's memorial. I'd completely forgotten it was there. And it's out in a place called Pirita, which is way out beyond the east of the city. It's where the Olympic marina was, where the Olympic sailing was in 1980. And there's also uh, a major um, ruined convent and monastery there. But there's a big wooded area and like the memorial is still there. Northern Ireland had played in Estonia a couple of months earlier. And Michael O'Neill and a few of the players had gone out there to, uh, you know, put a few flags and a few mementos and some flowers there. Um, and, you know, I'd been visiting the city for maybe 10 or 11 years without realising that one of the greatest sports people the, the island of Ireland has ever produced actually died there. And there's a massive memorial. So like when the fam uh, the day before I was heading off uh, for the powerlifting and like the family had uh, headed home um, and I was still around in Tallinn with a day to myself I actually went out there to Perth it took a few hours um, and it's this serene place he, this sort of this tree that juts out onto the road a little bit in the shape of a Y and he collided with that and the tree is still there the memorial is still there and it's really touching there are, there are so many little monuments uh, that people have placed there down through the years that um you know, probably since 
2000, um, when it became a memorial. There's a wonderful memorial stone there. And obviously that 20th anniversary of his death is going to be at the start of July. Um, but there, I mean, there, there's so many terrific things there. Usually when I'm in Tallinn, it coincides with the early rounds of maybe the Champions League or the Europa League. So I've seen Dundalk play there against Lavadia. I've seen uh, Nomakalu play there. I've seen uh, an old club called Infonets who then closed a couple of years ago. I've seen their Champions League games. And I've seen Estonia play a few times there as well, including against England, the 1-0 win around 2012 or 2013 when Rain Rooney got the only goal. There is a fan, just, you know, not as a journalist, but there's football on. I'm in the city, why not go? But Tallinn is, is, is absolutely fabulous. It's one of my most favourite places in the world. Yeah, it sounds like a fascinating place and something of a, a hidden gem as well. So I'm going to certainly add that to my uh, places to visit down the line, Will. Away from sport. What do you do to unwind? Do you pedal the roads of the sunny southeast? Are you out jogging each evening? Or Well, I, I mean, I used to. Um, and I actually have a bike here that's in a bit of disrepair. Uh, it's one of the things that when Satanta Ireland uh, shut down in 2009, I suddenly found a very empty summer. Uh, but thankfully, they managed to get a few rights back. So I was working on a couple of things a week. But I wasn't living in Ireland anymore. I'd actually moved back down to to Aglish and got my old bike out, did a lot of pedaling then, um, had a couple of great summers of cycling, which sadly I haven't been able to recreate since. But I do a lot of walking. I live right down by the Barrow Way and it's absolutely fantastic. And one, there would be an ambition one day to sort of walk all the way down to St. Mullins, which is about probably maybe 20 or 30 miles away. Um, and apart, it is doable um, and quite a few people have done it. If you get a good enough summer's day, it's definitely achievable. Um, it's definitely an ambition of mine, but I would sort of tend to do a lot of walking. Um, in terms of TV, like I said, I do, I am interested in sort of overseas shows, um, but not just them. Chernobyl was on a couple of months ago, which was fantastic. It's one of the best programs I, I think I've seen. Um, I really love Westworld. I, I started watching Westworld from episode one because I remember the film, the original film in the 70s with Yul Brynner. And I said, well, maybe I'll watch an episode or two and see if it's any good. And then obviously it ended up being brilliant. And the same thing happened with CSI. I remember it starting off, I think, during Winter Olympics or something like that and saying, well, maybe I'll watch one or two episodes. I, I remember the Winter Olympics were on. I'd visited a friend of mine who's, I think it was their rag week or something like that in Carlo because I was still quite young, early 20s or something like that. And the Winter Olympics had been on. I'd got back home. This was in Salt Lake, so it was wrapping up at about 3 a.m. And I'd seen the ads for CSI, and I said, oh, wonder if that's going to be any good. And I just had a, a thought that, well, if I don't watch it now, I'm not going to watch it. It's 3 a.m. I don't want to watch it. It's going to be terrible, probably. I'll watch it, and then I can say, well, that's it. I gave it a try. And it ended up being one of the most incredible things I'd seen. And it's been, I think, one of the best American shows of the last 20 years. Certainly the first six or seven seasons were before various cast members went. But um, I thought Wallander was great. Um, I, I love shows which have particular settings. Inspector Montalbano, I think, is fantastic. The Italian crime drama, which is set on... I think it's Sicily or Sardinia. And that's a really, really good show. Sort of unusual stuff like that I really like watching. I don't tend to watch that much TV. In terms of Netflix, like I mentioned Stranger Things, the new version of Star Trek, I think, is fantastic. The one uh, that had the new Captain Pike 
and that Jason Isaacs was in. I think that's actually really very good. I made the mistake of watching the first couple of episodes when they were coming out on a Monday evening when my kids were in the room because it's Star Trek like it's never been before. So I make sure the kids are in bed now um, if it comes on when, when I do watch it. But I think that is very, very good. But overall, in terms of TV, I don't tend to get to watch very much. But when I'm in Tallinn, I find I, I end up going to the cinema probably six or seven times because the cinema is very cheap there. And I, I love going to movies, but like where I am is probably about 20 miles from the nearest cinema. So I, I don't tend to go as much here and it's a lot more expensive here. But what I ended up going to last summer in Tallinn uh, at the cinema was the Diego Maradona documentary made by Asif Kaparia, which is brilliant and which I would recommend everybody to watch. Now, the thing with Estonia is, right, um, cartoons, animated movies are dubbed into Estonian. And I made that big mistake going to see Inside Out with my little boy because it was all in Estonian. I don't speak Estonian and neither does he because he's, he's Irish born. Uh, Mighty boys are Irish born, so they don't really speak Estonian. Um, but they will show a live action movie in its native language and there'll be subtitles in Estonian and Russian underneath. So I said, okay, well, that's fine. I'll go and watch this. It'll be in English. Um... No problem. I'll really enjoy it. And I did really enjoy it, despite the fact it's in Spanish and Italian, which I don't speak, and the subtitles were in Estonian and Russian. There were about two lines of English, both of which were delivered by Jimmy McGee, which was great, The um, uh, from the 1990 World Cup. So, so, I mean, it was nice being in Tallinn to hear a very familiar voice. One of my favourite commentators of all time, along with, you know, Barry Davis. I, I think they're both, you know, the two best commentators who've ever lived. Um, so that was a nice little taste of home. The rest of the documentary, I absolutely didn't understand, but it was a really good watch. So um, it's obviously been on TV subsequently, and I watched it there. And also when I was flying, I think, to Dubai for those Para-Athletics Championships at the end of last year, I watched it on the plane going over, and I watched it on the plane going back. And if there's... like. There are some documentaries I enjoy watching as well. There's a really good one, which again, like the Maradona one, Channel 4 had... Uh, an influence in the funding and I think it's called Three Identical Strangers it's an incredible documentary about um, three New Yorkers about the same age who didn't know each other bumped into each other and it turned out they were triplets and that you know that was amazing and the more you think about it you think how could that actually have happened and then there is a sinister tint to it and it's it's again it's one of the most amazing things i've seen it's probably on one of the platforms like netflix and so on and i definitely recommend that as well so i like a good documentary but as i say i honestly with the work i don't tend to get to watch much tv and the way things have been the past few months the only tv that's been on have been the minions i love richard odsman's quiz show at Tea Times, the House of Games. I, that is one of the best things on TV. I think it's brilliant. Well, I look forward to checking all those documentaries out, Will. I guess 30 years ago this week, a certain Italian 90 would have been happening. Slightly before my time, but back then you would have been a, a keen sports follower. You would have been covering, I suppose, the school sports scene at that time and just getting into to radio. So over the last 25, 30 years, what has been your sporting highlight from it all? Well, if there's one moment that you've you've reported on, commentated on, what do you rank as number one? Okay, I think there's a couple of things here and like there's different layers to it, if you like. At, at a local level, I, I adored working on Ballycotton for years. Being in Wexford when they won the Leinster title and the All-Ireland title right at the start of my radio career in 1996 will be an all-time highlight. Like your United's runs that we were talking about, that's an absolute highlight. From a national level, um, it's sort of interesting. I would probably say the World Cup in 06, um, 
was one of the most incredible things I've ever been at. Just the wave of enthusiasm in Germany, because uh, it was the first major sporting event really in a united Germany that took in the whole nation. And there was this incredible wave of enthusiasm, which I don't think I've ever seen before or since. It was a truly united nation. They kind of got their identity back. They felt that there was a pride in them. There was nothing wrong in being German and being happy about it and waving the German flag because obviously they'd had 60 years of, you know, mental reparations and, and monetary reparations, if you like, after, you know, the 30s and the 40s. That was great. And like as a sporting event, I, I don't think anything beats the World Cup. The Olympics was magnificent in 08. I've been in the... I've, I've, been in person for all but one of Usain Bolt's world records in the 100, the 200, and the 4 by one um, Running 9.69 in Beijing at the Olympics there was something unbelievable. And I thought I would never see anything like that again until a year later he goes and he breaks world records in the 100 and the 200 in 2009 in Berlin. And obviously, Olaf Lochnan won a silver there as well in the walk at the start of the week. And then that got the week off to a brilliant start. Bolt kept it going. That and probably the 2006 European Athletics, when Derville won her joint silver in the 110 metres hurdles, alongside Kirsten Baum and Susanna Kalur won the gold medal. And I actually interviewed both Kalur sisters at the start of the week, her and her sister Jenny. And I think Susanna is now working on TV in Sweden, along with Kaiser Bergvist, who was a massive fan of the... World High Jump Champion, and Carolina Kluft, who was the best heptathlete for so on. I mean, athletics probably. If I had to make a choice now, and I adore football, I love football. It's a 52-week-a-year thing. Athletics isn't. But if there was a thing where I I was told, right, we're going to offer you 30 weeks a year of athletics, and you can't work on anything else, I I would probably say, yes, please. Because like London 2012, and people will talk about, you know, Super Saturday and the... you know, the triple gold that Britain had on home soil of Ennis, Farah and Rutherford. And that was an incredible thing to be at. It's always something special when a host nation gets success, especially if they're not particularly used to it in a sport like that. But also being in Moscow the following year when Rob Heffernan won his world championship gold in the walk, going through the line in the Luzhniki. And we had to get up at about 5 or 6 a.m. for the start of that race because obviously it's the longest event in sport. It's almost four hours. So out of... Out of all the highlights, and you asked me to pick one, I'll go for those, and that's it. Probably no one's still listening, but I'm going to go for all those. It's been a bumper, Will, but I've really enjoyed it. I've, we've broken the, the two-hour mark. Uh, we've smashed it. It's it's double, almost treble, I'd say, the longest uh, of my podcast. Certainly double, anyway. Uh, no, it's been, it's, it's been a pleasure, absolutely. really enjoyed it, and uh, we could stay talking undoubtedly but um to conclude what what motivates you so well what 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 makes you tick would you say the next big events i mean i came into uh like the tail end of last year i had those para athletics world championships coming up it was going to be a full summer last year so i kind of thought you know summer holidays possibly weren't going to happen but they did so i had two big events to work on last year the european games for example the you know the european olympics i think are a brilliant event to work on but in britain and ireland they kind of tend to get overshadowed and overlooked even though a lot of our best athletes are there um it's always the next big thing. So coming into 2020, it was those three events that I was going to be working on across Europe and into Asia in April, May and June. Then the next big thing I always look forward to is I always look forward to my summer holidays. I, I Normally it would be in Estonia and then probably a few days somewhere else in Scandinavia as well. And that is for me 
the happiest time of year for me. But it's always the next big event. And right now, I'm not quite sure what that's going to be. And I think it's the same for a lot of people. But it's always the future. It's always the next thing. It's nice to be working on, you know, so many great things. I've been lucky to have worked in so many important things for Satanta particularly, I did all. I worked on all the Satanta Cup finals. I did all, but one of their League Cup finals up to uh, 2016, when Steven Gerrard slipped uh, for Liverpool against Chelsea. I was commentating on that for them. I did the Champions League final for them in 2013. I've done FA Cup semi-finals, Europa League semi-finals, and stuff like that, which is all really nice to have done. But it's always the next thing. Um, and at the moment, it looks like the next things are all in 2021. So next year is my motivation, probably. There's something really sportsman about that, looking forward to the next the next goal, the next target, the next three points. Well, it probably is, without ever actually having been a sportsman. But it is, uh, it is probably the next best thing. I think I had worked out at a very young age, I was never going to be a sportsman, but this would be the next best thing. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a million for your time this morning. I've really enjoyed our chat. And... Uh, we look forward to uh, hearing from you around the globe again in the uh, not-too-distant future. But as you said, you're commentating on, on Polish football for the foreseeable future. Anyway, people can hear you on uh, uh, Premier Sports, Free Sports as well. Dobra, Dobra. And I, I sincerely hope, because Inter against Tatafe still has to be played, that I'm still going to be doing that for Virgin. Um, we'll see. I could pop up anywhere. That's, that's my career now. <laughs>